0: So we're reading and and preaching through the New Testament. We're not looking at everything, uh, but we're reading five chapters a week. If you're reading along with us, the five chapters you read this week is 1 Timothy 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Next week we'll finish up with chapter 6 and we'll move into 2 Timothy. If you were here with us on Wednesday night, our adults in college met in this room Jason Westfall, our college pastor, did a great job walking us through 1 Timothy 4, where Paul says to Timothy that Christians ought to train themselves for godliness. You ought to train yourself for godliness. The youth were upstairs with Jake, and Jake looked at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and they talked about the roles of elder or pastor or overseer and the roles of deacon in the church, and so he spelled out to our young people what the the Bible says about those offices and those responsibilities in 1 Timothy. Our passage is back in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 12 to verse 17. And I want to start with a wide-angle lens to make sure that we're all on the same page when it comes to this book of the Bible, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus are all letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, not to churches, but to pastors of churches. So Paul wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. We call it Ephesians. Paul also wrote a letter to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. We're about to read one of those letters this morning, 1 Timothy. Jason did a great job in talking about the pastoral epistles Wednesday night. I won't repeat or rehash his argument, but he did a great job of pointing out to us and teaching us that these letters are very important for pastors like me and like our elders to read and to understand and to live out, and they're also very important for you if you're not a pastor to read, and to understand, and to have right expectations when it comes to your church experience about what is go- what God has called a pastor to do or not to do. So these letters are unique in the Bible, and they're certainly very important as we think about what we do and who we are as a church. Let's talk about Paul and Timothy and Ephesus. The Bible tells us that Paul spent between two and three years, but probably closer to three in Ephesus, planting this church, and initially pastoring this church. He was the first pastor or the first leader of this church in Ephesus. When Paul left Ephesus, he put Timothy in charge. Timothy was the second pastor. He followed Paul. Now, many times when you hear people talk about Timothy and his role as the pastor in Ephesus. Many times you'll hear people say things like, Oh, Timothy, he was young, he was inexperienced, he lacked confidence, he was not very assertive, he was a bit timid, he tended to be scared of certain situations, maybe certain people. And there could be something to all of those things about Timothy and his personality and his role in Ephesus. I just want to acknowledge, in defense of Timothy... Ephesus was not an easy place to be a pastor, and it was certainly not an easy thing to follow the Apostle Paul, and it was certainly not an easy thing to pastor this church as the very first church that you had pastored. Let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus. It was a massive city, absolutely massive, one of the largest in the Roman Empire. Many, many Roman officials would leave public service and move to Ephesus. It was popular. It had amenities. It was a wealthy city. Business flowed through Ephesus like you can't imagine. Some of the richest people, literally some of the richest people in the Roman Empire, made their home and had their businesses in Ephesus. The city we know from the book of Acts not only had a lot of important people, Not only had a lot of rich people, but it also had a lot of lost people. Ephesus was a city that was devoted to magic and sorcery and idolatry and all sorts of dark forms of religion and spirituality. It was a very dark place spiritually. And many of the people in Ephesus were so devoted to their idolatry, they were ready to riot and mob against Christians at the drop of a hat. You can read about that in the book of Acts. This was not a peaceful city. This was a place where to be a Christian was costly. And it was a place where to be a pastor was costly. So was Timothy a bit timid? Maybe. Was he young? He was certainly young. Was he inexperienced? Yes, this was his first rodeo. But just because Paul is encouraging him to step up and to be strong and to lead this church doesn't mean that he was just a pushover. It might just mean that Paul had left him, having confidence in him, in a very difficult, very challenging situation. So that's Paul and Timothy and Ephesus. Let me follow up with this comment. The book of 1 Timothy contains a number of statements that contradict the wisdom of our world. So I hope that you're reading through the New Testament with us this year. I hope you're tracking along five chapters a week. It's not a hard reading plan. If you are, and you read 1 Timothy 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, my strong hunch is that as you read those chapters this week, you thought to yourself, that would make a lot of people mad today. There's a lot of stuff in 1 Timothy that secular people, non-Christian people, would find deeply offensive. In fact, there's stuff in First Timothy that many church-going people who claim to follow Jesus still find very offensive and troubling. This book, I don't believe in these sorts of things, but this book for modern people maybe should come with a trigger warning you know what a trigger warning is? It's like your college professor says, hey, we're trying to create a safe space, and I'm about to talk about something that you might find offensive, so I'm I'm apologizing ahead of time that I might offend you or I might hurt your feelings or I might say something you don't like. And if you think you may not like it, you're free to step out or plug your ears or whatever because the greatest thing or the worst thing you could do to anybody these days is offend them or say something that would bother them or trigger them. And I'm just telling you, this book needs a trigger warning for a lot of people. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this. Because there's something that you need to understand about 1 Timothy. If your Bible's open, I'm just going to mention some of the controversial things in this book. Chapter 1, verse 8, 9, 10, 11. Paul says, The gospel of Jesus Christ is completely incompatible with unrepentant, unremorseful sin. Now, we're going to talk this morning about Jesus coming to save sinners But what Paul's saying is that if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus, there is no place in your life for known, intentional, flagrant, unrepentant sin. Those two things cannot go together. That bothers people when you say that today. Another thing that you'll find in this book is chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. That passage says that there is only one God. And there is only one mediator between God and men. It's an exclusive claim to truth. Anyone's idea is not as good as anyone else's idea of God. There is only one God and there is only one mediator between God and men, and that is the man Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 8. Paul has the audacity to say that God created men and women distinct and unique. And he actually knew what he was doing when he did that. Those are not interchangeable categories of being for us to play around with. And God has given some things for men to do. And he has given some things for women to do. And there's verses here that make people lose their mind today. But it's rooted in a very old, very ancient, very biblical wisdom that God created us. He created us male and female. And we are not... The same, both equally dignified and created in God's image, but God has given us distinct roles that we are not allowed to to play with. Chapter 3, Paul talks about how you should pick a pastor. This flies in the face of what most churches do today. Most churches today, they look for a pastor and they say, we need somebody with celebrity potential. We need somebody who's highly creative We need somebody who is completely competent in all sorts of areas and skills and abilities. That's the person we need. And do you know what Paul says? He says, you need somebody with character. It's not that creativity is bad or celebrity is always bad or competence is bad. But the primary thing that Paul says is you've got to look for somebody who has the right character. Many times we're looking for the wrong things. Chapter 5 talks about benevolence within a church. It says that a church has responsibility for its people. However, if you read chapter 5, you know that that benevolence is not without limits. It's not without restraint. It's not just to be a free ATM of money to anyone who says they have a need. That may not sound very controversial to you, but we regularly have people who walk into our building and they say, "Hey, I need help." financially in this area and we say to them here's how we help people in your scenario we have a way to do that this is that way they don't like that answer and this is what they say to a person i thought you were a church i thought you're supposed to help people now i don't get into a big debate about first timothy five but in my mind i say we are a church check We are supposed to help people, check, but that doesn't mean we just give away all of the money that you put in the offering box on Sunday during the week. And Paul details that out, how it should have looked in the church in Ephesus with Timothy and the widows in this church. Chapter 6, you want to talk about something controversial today? God thinks work is important. He thinks it's important and he actually cares about your work. And you want to get more controversial? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and wickedness and sin. That flies in the face of the wisdom of our age. That work is important and God dignifies it and values it. And that while you work, you should not only work to get wealth. Chapter 6, verse 20, the gospel has been entrusted to the church and it never changes. So our job is to guard it. Our job is not to make it more palatable for people who live in the West in 2022. That's not our job when it comes to the gospel. Our job is to proclaim it and to defend it and to guard it because it's been entrusted to us. It's not our job to change it or update it or modify it simply our job to proclaim it. Here's why I take a moment to point out those things in 1 Timothy. I recognize that there's a lot of stuff in 1 Timothy that if you just start broadcasting this stuff, people will say, I don't like that, I don't like that, I don't like that. You have a decision to make when you read the scriptures, when you read 1 Timothy. The decision is Will I allow the Word of God to stand over me as an authority and to shape the way I think about life? Or will I and my culture stand over the Bible to pick and to choose what we like and what we don't like? When it comes to 1 Timothy, there is so much that is so offensive to people today. It's a good test point, it's a good test case to say which one will you choose because you cannot do both when it comes to 1 Timothy 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, you have a decision to make, will I hang on to the wisdom of the world or will I submit to the wisdom of God you can't do both speaking of the wisdom of God, one of the unique things that you find in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus is a group of verses, there's five of them In these verses, Paul says, this saying, whatever he's talking about, this saying is a trustworthy saying. There's three of these verses in 1 Timothy. There's one in 2 Timothy and there's one in Titus. They only show up in the pastoral epistles. And what Paul is saying in these verses is, this thing right here is true. It is really, really true. There's a theologian of recent years named Francis Schaeffer who used to talk about true truth. True truth. This is really true. And five times Paul makes a point to say to Timothy, Timothy or Titus, I'm about to tell you something that's really, really important. You cannot miss this. This thing is really true. It is true forever. It is true truth. And the first of those statements is in our passage 1 Timothy 1:15. 1, so let's talk about the big idea of what we're about to read. I've pulled the big idea straight out of verse 15, word for word. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In your Bible, follow along as I read. This is the word of God, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me, faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as Your people, we gather together. We recognize our sin. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We look to Jesus Christ, the one that you sent, the one who came into the world to save us, and we find hope. God, as we think about this trustworthy statement this morning, we pray that your word would be in authority over us and that we would not dare or presume to stand in authority over your word. Father, may the truth of the gospel this morning strengthen us, convict us, and encourage us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier this week on Instagram, I came across a story that ESPN shared. The story was a story of a father and son. Father's name was Dick Hoyt. The son's name was Rick Hoyt. Together they were known as Team Hoyt. Dick passed away about a year ago. He was 80 years old, and I think ESPN was sharing the story sort of in commemoration of his passing in 2021. Dick's son, Rick, was born with cerebral palsy. And the story of this father and son duo is absolutely an amazing story. Together, father and son, they competed in and completed 1,130 endurance events. So what is an endurance event? Think like a 5K would qualify as an endurance event, some sort of race, some sort of competition. But you can't just limit it to 5Ks because father and son together, Dick and Rick Hoyt, they competed in and completed 72 marathons. And together, they competed in and completed. This is the most mind-blowing statistic of all the things they accomplished. Six Ironman competitions. You know what an Ironman competition is? An Ironman competition has three parts. Part one, 2.4 miles of swimming. And you get out of the water, and you ride a bike for about 112 miles. Then you get off the bike and you finish it off with a leisurely marathon at the end. That's an Ironman competition. And together, they completed six of them. Now, you look at father and son, and you say, the son had cerebral palsy. How in the world did they compete in and finish six Ironman competitions? That's a valid way to study Team Hoyt, to think about or to talk about Team Hoyt. Here's the answer. When it came to the water... Dick put his son in a boat, and he tied the boat to himself, and he swam. Then he got his son out of the boat and loaded him onto a seat that he had mounted on the bike. Sometimes this seat was on the front, like the picture on the bottom left. Sometimes the seat was on the back. But he put his son into this seat, and he rode 112 miles on the bike. And then he got off, and he picked up his son, and he put him in a special wheelchair, and he pushed it for the running portion of the race. You understand, you have to do these things in this order in an Ironman competition, because if you did the swimming last, almost everyone would drown. Right? Seriously. Seriously. You swim first because it's the most dangerous part of the competition. So when you have the most strength, you swim. Then you move to the bike because if you're riding a bike and your legs cramp up and you lock up and you fall, you can get hurt really bad. So secondly, you ride the bike. And then thirdly, they let you run knowing that if something happens to you, you just sort of fall over on the side of the road. Six of them, they finished together. How did they do it? Well, he pulled his son. He Put him on a bike and rode the bike, and he pushed him in his wheelchair six times. You could talk about Team Hoyt, and you could ask the question, why did they do this? Why did they do it? Dick Hoyt said the reason they did it is that after competing in some smaller events, his son said to him, Rick said to his dad, when we do these things, I don't feel disabled. And Dick said, we'll do another one. And another one. And another one. Over a thousand of them in total. You could talk about Team Hoyt and you could ask the question, what does this teach me about fathers and sons, about Dick Hoyt and his son Rick Hoyt and about their relationship together? There's lots of different ways that we could talk about this amazing family and this amazing story. Similarly, when you look at 1 Timothy one fifteen and the claim, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, there's a number of ways we could talk about that story. One of the ways we could talk about that story is to ask the question, how? How did He do that? It would be a good question for you to ask and to understand. You might use uh, several words in summarizing the how. You would start with the word incarnation. The Son of God took on human flesh. God, the second member of the Trinity, became a man. He was truly God, truly man. He was the God-man. He lived a life of perfect obedience. We read earlier from Hebrews about Jesus being our great high priest. The reason in Hebrews that Jesus could function as our great high priest is that He was completely without sin. He was sinless. He was righteousness. He lived a life of perfect obedience. And He died a sacrificial death on the cross. That's the idea of atonement. He gave His life to provide a payment for sin. And that payment makes us at one with God. He was buried and three days later He rose from the dead. We've sang about that truth this morning. Jesus is alive. The Bible says He ascended to heaven, that's really important for you because it means that Jesus has ascended to the throne of the universe. He's ruling and reigning over all things. And if you are a Christian, He is right now praying for you, interceding on your behalf. And one day the Bible says He will come again. We talked about that last week, the second coming of the Lord Jesus to gather His people to Himself. That's the how question. How is it, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and you would summarize it with those terms. Incarnation, obedience, atonement, resurrection, ascension, and return. It's not how Paul is talking about verse 15 in this passage. It's not the particular question he's asking. He deals with that question in other places, but here the question is not how. Here the question is, what should you and I learn about God and about salvation because of what Christ has done to save sinners? So I just want you to see several truths from this passage. What does this passage teach us about salvation? Here's the first truth. Salvation has its foundation in the mercy and the grace of God. It does not have its foundation in who you are or who I am or anything that we might do or not do. The foundation of our salvation is the mercy and the grace of God. If your Bible's open, you'll see those terms, those words in verse 13. He says that he received mercy. You'll see it in verse 14 the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. And you'll see it in verse 16 I received mercy. Many times the Bible uses those two terms, mercy and grace, almost interchangeably to refer to the same thing, the kindness of God towards sinners. If we would make any distinction, it might be this, that in times the word mercy suggests that God withholds the punishment that we deserve as sinners. That's His mercy, holding back what we deserve. His grace is Positive in nature. It's God giving us the opposite of what we deserve. And you see how those two ideas can go together and blend together. His mercy and His grace. He withholds the punishment that we deserve as sinners, and He gives us the opposite of what we deserve as sinners. That is the foundation of your salvation if you are a Christian. You may hear that and you may say, I know that these things are true about Jesus, but I'm not sure they're true of the God of the Old Testament. Maybe you've been told by multiple people, maybe you've heard it on TV programs, maybe you've read it in books, that Jesus is very much in the category of merciful and gracious, but that the God of the Old Testament is a grouch, mean, spiteful. Angry, flies off the handle, has a bad temper. If that's your idea of the God of the Old Testament, of the one true God, who is the same God of the New Testament, I would just ask you to reread the Old Testament. Don't take anyone's word for it. Reread the Old Testament and think about a passage like Exodus 34. This is what we read in Exodus 34. God's speaking to Moses, and He says that He is the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who God has always been. That's who He is today, and it's who He will always be, a merciful, gracious God. And that is the foundation of your salvation if you're a believer. If you're a Christian It's not that you just woke up one day and said, you know, I think I'm going to be a Christian. That's not the foundation of your salvation. It's better than that. It's older than that. It's stronger than that. It is the mercy and the grace of God. It's God's character from eternity past to eternity future as a merciful, gracious God. Here's the second thing this passage teaches us about salvation. Salvation begins with confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Paul does a good bit of this in the verses that we just read. In verse 13 and verse 15, Paul says that he was a blasphemer. That means that he used to say things about God that were not true about God. Blasphemer is a slanderer of God. And Paul's saying, I used to say things about God that were not at all true. I was guilty of blasphemy. Paul says that he was a persecutor. He's talking about his role in persecuting Christians and rounding them up and sending them to prison. He says that he was an insolent opponent. You could loosely translate that, I was a foolish, hostile enemy of God. I've not always been God's friend. Paul would tell you I used to be God's enemy and an insolent enemy at that. Paul says he acted in ignorance. That's a thing for people to admit, right? I was ignorant. I did not know. And he says that he was an unbeliever. I acted in unbelief. That's interesting, right? Because Paul would say all of his life he believed in God. Some idea of God, a God, but he looks back before his salvation, before he met the Lord Jesus, and he says, You know what? I was lost in unbelief, in ignorance. I was an enemy of God. I was a persecutor of the church. I blasphemed God. He adds all that up together, and in verse 15, he says that he is the foremost sinner, the chief of sinners. That's the kind of person Jesus came for. Do not have in your mind that Jesus came for people who were good, upright, honest, people of integrity, high moral character, the salt of the earth, the kind of people you want to be your neighbor. That's not the kind of people he came for, he came for sinners. And He came for people who were willing to recognize their sin and confess it. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 2. He said that He did not come for those who think that they're well. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous But sinners. As you read that in Mark chapter 2, you understand that Jesus did not think there were people who were spiritually well. Jesus did not think that there were people who were spiritually righteous, but he knew that some of the people in his audience thought they were well on their own and they were self righteous. And what Jesus says in this passage is I did not come for those people. I came for people who will confess their sin, who will agree with God about their sin and who will turn from their sin. When Jesus started preaching in the Gospel of Mark, the very first thing He said is, Repent and believe. The kingdom of God has come. Repent. Confess your sin and repent of your sin. That word makes people uneasy today. You know it and I know it. Confession of sin and repentance from sin. Almost everyone you know is willing to admit to you that they are not a perfect person. Very few people have the hubris to claim that they're perfect. They have no faults. Most people will admit that. But confessing sin and turning from sin is another thing entirely. The call of the gospel is a call to agree with God about your sin, to confess it, and to turn from it, to repent. As I thought about this idea this last week, my mind kept going to David. David talks in Psalm 32 about a period in his life where he had unconfessed sin. And this is how David describes it. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. That's where the change comes in. In the first part, he says he kept silent. But then he acknowledged his sin to God and he did not cover his iniquity. And he said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When David tried to cover his sin, he felt like he was physically wasting away, spiritually wasting away from the inside out. And when he actually moved to confess his sin, God covered his sin. God forgave his sin. God didn't shame him. God didn't wag his finger at him. That's not who he is. He's merciful and he's gracious. And he forgave David's iniquity. I wonder this morning if you need to confess sin to God. I think that's a question for every last one of us in this room, Christian or non-Christian, believer or non-believer. Do you need to confess sin to God? Maybe you have never in your life done that. Not once. Maybe your life has been filled with making excuses. After excuse, after excuse for your sin. Maybe your life has been filled with blaming other people for your sin. Maybe your life has been one long attempt to redefine what sin is so that you don't fall in that category of sinner. And maybe for the very first time this morning, you simply need to confess God, I'm a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you have never done that, and you would do it this morning, right now, not later in the service, not after the service, not in an invitation, right now, you will find that God is merciful and He's gracious. And when you acknowledge your sin to Him, He will cover it with the blood of His Son, and He will forgive your iniquity. Maybe you've done that. And you are a Christian. In fact, I would imagine most of us probably have done that. And yet it still may be that you need to this morning confess sin to God. Maybe not sin generally. If you're a Christian, maybe you agree. I know that I am a sinner generally, broadly speaking. But maybe, even if you're a follower of Jesus, there is something in your life right now in your heart, in your mind, on your tongue that you need to confess to God and you need to quit trying to cover it and you just need to agree with God about it and maybe as I talk about that in the back of your mind you're thinking what's the use, he knows it already he knows everything I'm not going to tell him anything that he doesn't know. And you're right about all of those things. He does know it already. And you are not going to tell him anything that he doesn't know. But the God of the Bible who is merciful and gracious wants you, calls you to agree with him about your sin problem. And he calls you to uncover it and confess it. And he promises Not to shame that kind of person, not to scold that kind of person, but he promises that he will forgive that kind of person. Why? On what basis? On the basis of his son, the Lord Christ Jesus, who came into the world to save sinners. People who would acknowledge and confess their sin to God, just like Paul does in this passage. Truth number three, what does this passage teach us about salvation? Salvation is a call to ministry and service. In the order of our passage, verse 12 and 13 come up towards the beginning. But in the logic of what Paul's describing, this is something that came later in his life. And it just comes at the beginning because that's the way that Paul's telling his own story. But in verse 12, he says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Paul was appointed to the ministry of being an apostle. An apostle was an eyewitness of the resurrection, and Paul saw, he witnessed, he had a direct experience of the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was a witness to the resurrection. And he was called to lead and to teach and to serve as an authority in the early church. And Paul said, God didn't just forgive me to forgive me, but he forgave me, and then he gave me a ministry. He gave me a place of service. Now, here's the thing. The book of Ephesians tells us that God is building a people. He's building a church. And he has already laid the cornerstone. You know who the cornerstone is? It's the Lord Jesus. Guess what? We don't need any more cornerstones. He's doing just fine as the cornerstone of what God is building. And then Ephesians 2 says that God laid a foundation lined up with that cornerstone. Do you know what the foundation is? It's the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. When you build something, you need one solid foundation foundation. You don't need to keep relaying the foundation over and over and over again endlessly if you do it right the first time. So the cornerstone has been set. The foundation of the apostles and the prophets has been laid, which means we're not taking applications for cornerstones. We're not taking applications for prophets. We're not taking applications for apostles. But what Paul goes on to say in Ephesians, and he says it also in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, is that if God has saved you, He's gifted you to serve His people and to build up the body of Christ. He has gifted you for the common good of His church. That's true for every person who has confessed their sin to God and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of you, every one of us, who is a Christian, has been called and gifted to have service to the church, to have a ministry in the church. Now in your life, that doesn't mean that you do everything that needs to be done in our church. And there may be seasons in your life because of health or family situation or whatever, work situation, where you're not able to serve in certain capacities. Some of us have been given opportunity to give more, and some of us have been given opportunity to give less, and I'm talking financially. Your service doesn't have to look like my service, and mine doesn't have to look like yours. And there may be seasons of life where it looks a little bit different for you, or there may be opportunities or lack of opportunities in our congregation for people to serve in various ways. But if you have been saved by the mercy and the grace of God... God's given you, not the role of apostle, but a ministry and a way to serve His people. One last truth. Salvation is intended to create worshipers who glorify God. Notice verse 16. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience As an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. This is not like you might say to your kids or a coach might say to their players, I'm going to make an example out of you. In a negative sense. This is God saying, Paul is going to be an example. He's going to be a trophy of mine. He's going to be like a billboard. Showing people what I intend to do in their lives. Showing people who I am as the patient one. Look at verse 17. Paul has thought about all of these things, who he used to be, who God is, how he's confessed his sin to God, and at the end, it's almost like a Broadway musical. He just breaks out into a song. This last verse, verse 17, is a doxology. That literally means a word of praise, a word of praise, doxology. And he says this, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You're welcome for me not singing that to you. What I'm saying to you is that Paul thinks about all this stuff and it literally just flows out of his heart. It just comes out. He can't hold it in. Most basically, that's what worship is. It is the overflow of what is in your heart. Let me help you understand this. A week ago, from today, one week ago, at about 7.30 in the evening. If you were on social media, you saw the outflow of many hearts as the Dallas Cowboys kicked a field goal to win a football game. And many, many Dallas Cowboy fans got on social media and started saying things like, we're going to the Super Bowl. Cooper Rush is the greatest. We're the best football team of all time. We just beat the team that was in the Super Bowl last year, which probably means we're going to win the Super Bowl this year. And all of this stuff just started coming out from their hearts. Why? It's because Cowboys fans lose all the time, and our hearts get broken. And when we win a game, it just comes out, and we say, This is amazing. This is what it feels like to win. This is great. This is why when ESPN shared the story this week of Dick and Rick Hoyt, it's an old story, it's not a new story. People watched the video clip. They thought about what this father did for their son and thousands, millions of people hit the like button, the heart button, the share button. They sent it to people on text messages and said, you have got to watch this. What an amazing story. Why? Because you heard the story It resonated in your heart, and it had to come out somehow. My prayer for you is that when you think about your relationship with God, when you think about who you were as a sinner, who you are as a sinner, who you could have become, if God had left you to your sin. When you think about the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world to save people like you, sinners, and you think about the mercy and the grace of God, I pray that there is some measure of overflow from your life. It doesn't have to be a social media post, it doesn't have to be tears and waterworks every time you think about it. It doesn't have to be you walking around in the middle of the day, breaking out in song like Paul does in verse 17. But I hope that as you think about those things, who you were, who God is, what Christ has done to save you, the ministry that He's given to you, and I pray that there is some overflow from your heart, some word of praise, some doxology that might sound like this. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.